This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important and informative coronavirus conversations that we had this week on our daily radio show. And Jason, for many of us, I was counting, it's either week four or five or more potentially of sheltering in place, meaning working from home alone or with our entire family, a disruption of our normal way of life as we figure out a new normal. And we saw that playing out politically in the business world and certainly certainly in the financial markets. Well, and it does feel like, I'm so glad you brought that up because it feels like it is creeping into every conversation, right? Like Mm -hmm. the novelty has worn off. Everybody has settled into some sort of routine as best they can. And now the question becomes, where do we go from here? We pose that question to a lot of different folks, CEOs, investors, how they're handling it and maybe what they see around the corner as we start to see some glimmer of hopes. Let's talk about who we talked to. One of the folks that we talked to was someone who runs a small business. It's publicly held, but I bet it's very familiar to a lot of folks in our audience. It's Party City. And we talked with the CEO, Brad Weston, on how his business, I got to say, they are struggling big time. They're also adapting and trying to reach more of their consumer base who are used to kind of going into their stores now online. We also talked with someone who has a number of different fascinating windows into this. We're talking about Sue Decker. She's Mm -hmm. the former president of Yahoo. That's probably how you know her name, but she's got a newer company. It's called Rafter. They work in the higher education space, but also keep in mind, she's on the board of Berkshire Hathaway and the board of Costco. What was great about her, she's at the intersection, as you said, of so much as a result of her background and her past positions and her current position. And she also gave us a little bit of optimism about the future. So looking forward to uh, hearing more of what she had to say. Also, the founder of Tom's Shoes, this whole one for one, Mm -hmm. never more important than it is. Now, first up, though, let's go inside the magazine this week. We spoke with Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg Market's own Mike Regan. There's not really a textbook definition to say, okay, this is what a, a bull market or a bear market is, but the sort of rule of thumb that everyone uses is obviously once you drop 20% from a peak, you're in a bear market. Uh, but uh, a lot of people think that if a bull market can then be defined as a 20% gain from that low. So we have seen that. We've seen the S&P up more than 20% from its its low in on March 23rd. The problem is that the worst bear markets in history are famous for having episodes where the the market rebounds significantly, more than 20%, say. It happened during the financial crisis uh, at the end of 2008 and in the early 2009. But ultimately, the the low uh, has yet to come. Um, Historically, if you look how long it takes for the S&P to find that bottom, to find that low point in a bear market, it usually takes a long time, something like 370 trading days on average, uh, putting some numbers crunched by my colleague Cameron Christ. So uh, obviously there's a lot of disparity in that. Um, the, look at, say, the crash of 1929. Uh, the bottom wasn't uh, found until 1932. Um, in the 2008-9 uh, example, you know, the market peaked in 2007. The, the low wasn't found until 2009. Um, and if you go all the way back to 1987, that, that was the shortest time it took to, to reach a low. Uh, it was something like 74 trading days. So if you look at this episode, that low we reached in March was only about 23 days after the last record in the S&P 500. So 
So historically, it would just be unprecedented to see that low reached in such a short amount of time. All right. So Joel Weber, also with this editor of the magazine, and we are reminded so often that the markets are not uh, the economy. How did you approach this story? I think the backdrop for everything for a lot of people here is obviously the unemployment numbers. But, you know, here in the middle of all this, obviously the market's trying to figure out what to make of it. And yeah. I the, the numbers that Mike um, has in this story are just staggering to, you know, go from this like highest high to lowest low in just like a matter of days, really. Um, and and I what I see when I look at it all is the market's trying to figure out what it all means. And, and um, you know, it, it really wants this to be over is the other thing. And I think we're seeing that even today. Um, it's just desperately wanting to like get around the corner. And I'm not so sure that that, you know, and that's part of what Mike has in the story is like, I'm not so sure, um, you know, that's going to be um, what we, what we get to live through because the other thing that's happening here obviously is that traders know you do not fight the Fed. Yeah. And that's where, you know, uh, as much as I just cited a bunch of historical <laughs> precedents, it's very difficult in this current situation to really go back and compare it to anything in history because it's so unique. It's so unlike anything we've seen in history. Um, and the response from the Federal Reserve and the government, that quick, massive, do-whatever-it-takes response uh, from both the Fed and Congress, is, is completely unprecedented in the history of you know, economic cycles that the markets had to work through uh, before. But when you have that much support from the Fed, when, you know, sort of suppressing interest rates, buying up all sorts of assets uh, to keep that liquidity flowing, it's very hard to, to put 100% faith into those historical precedents because of this, uh, you know, unprecedented response that we're seeing. But, you know, that said, there's just a lot of bad news that we still have to work through. Um, it's, it's really hard to imagine this market continuing on this sort of V-shaped recovery that it's in. And that's Bloomberg Markets, Mike Regan and Business Week editor, Joel Weber. You know, the markets, yeah. they have been a key piece to all of this. And yet we keep trying to synthesize or maybe uh, rectify, justify what the markets are doing versus what we see in the real world. Well, it's, you know, you take a look at what stocks have done, Jason. They've bounced more than 20%, as Mike writes, from that March 23rd low. And our conversations, even with our market guests, right? Is it a new bull market? Are we still in a bear market? We're trying to figure out. And Mike says, you know, hold on, everybody. Be careful about your enthusiasm about the equity markets because we have a long way to go to recovery. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we're going to catch up with the CEO of Party City, a long history he has in the retail business. He compares it to past crises and helps us understand what retail may look like going forward. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had this week on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Business Week. It runs every weekday afternoon, all about the coronavirus, of course, and looking around the corner, maybe, to what happens next, Carol. And of course, Jason, these conversations with leaders in their respective fields, all of it happening in real time. And Jason, one of the individuals that we caught up with was Brad Weston, the CEO of Party City. Now, keep in mind, it's a small business, but it's publicly held. It's taken a beating this year. Certainly, its share price has, and so has its business. And we talked with the CEO about how do you reach customers in an environment where they're so used to coming to its stores. Now, they are reaching aggressively online. So, you know, one of the fun things is uh, about Party City is, 
is our purpose as a brand is to be in the joy business and and we create joy by making it easy for, to create unforgettable memories. And we're unique, uniquely differentiated, really, to partner with uh, consumers who want to create customized and personalized uh, celebrations and parties that make life's milestones uh, and special occasions um, uh, amazing. And, you know, we see it as our job to make uh, make party heroes out of everyone and, and lots of ways uh, that we're doing that uh, as we speak, both uh, from our stores uh, and our website that we can talk some more about. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How do you make that shift? Because I feel, you know, candidly, when I think of Party City, I mostly think of like, all right, we're having a kid's party or we're having, you know, a big celebration. Let's head on over and you sort of go nuts in the store and, you know, you're having a good time. And as you say, you're, you know, like you're in the joy business of someone showing up, like they're throwing a party. It's fun. It's cool. Um, how do you ensure both logistically and and I guess from a feel perspective that, that you can translate that into an, an online or a, a non-retail uh, type scenario? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, and as a brand, our goal is to provide uh, the utility to consumers in in need of ways uh, only Party City can really credibly uh, deliver, and obviously we want to do that without overtly seeking credit or or appearing uh, op- opportunistic. Uh, despite being a, a part, uh, our goal throughout this time is is to continue to make it easy to share joyful moments of, of togetherness, and we believe you should never miss a chance to celebrate life's moments, uh, whether big or small, and. And, you know, we can do that in, in unique ways of, of togetherness. Uh, there's really two important ways that Party City is making that possible uh, for consumers to do just that. One is around uh, our operations. Uh, we have been fortunate to continue to provide nationwide delivery, uh, as well as introduce curbside pickup uh, in some of our markets. Uh, we're continuing to roll that out, uh, and only in markets where local uh, and state governments allow that at this point. Our goal is to make this service available in, in every one of our stores as circumstances permit. And then additionally, uh, markets, we're, you know, we're trying to expand to additional markets for uh, curbside pickup and expanded same-day delivery capabilities, uh, and more of those will become available uh, next week. Kind of the second is our ability to bring unexpected joy to people's lives uh, in this unique time. And, and if you go on PartyCity.com, you'll find a few ways uh, that we're doing that. One is a fun program we have, Adventure in a Box. Uh, so in response to social distancing and, and the quarantine requirements, uh, Party City immediately activated uh, themed Adventure in a Box survival kits uh, for families, which are a blast. Hmm. Uh, we really wanted to provide that in a convenient and safe way to social distancing uh, fatigue that we all know is happening and boredom that is happening. Uh, and so some of those boxes are things like uh, movie night to family game night. And uh, we've continued to expand uh, those curated selections over this past month. Uh, we've also added uh, a section called uh, Gifts of Joy. And as you think about it, our family, friends, uh, loved ones uh, who are you know in, in shelter-in-place situations uh, we often think about how could we put a little joy in their lives, right. uh, even if it isn't a party. 
Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that because we've had already um, one birthday at home, another one coming up and another one coming up. So we have really thought about, okay, what are kind of thoughtful gifts, first of all, of what families can do together while we're home? And then also thought about, you know, silly things, whether it's balloons we can blow up or something just because we can't go out, we can't do a lot of things we might normally do. So I, I do feel like I understand where you're coming from. I am curious, Brad, though, you know, how much of a business impact have you taken as a result of this? Because I know we've been in and out of your stores, whether it was Halloween or a party or something. Um, but obviously, we're not doing that. I mean, how tricky is it for you? I mean, you're publicly held. I know your stock has gone below, I think, a buck, which has made the New York Stock Exchange, you know, reach out to you guys in terms of, you know, being able to have your listing uh, on the exchange. Um, just from a business perspective, how tricky is it right now? Well, I think, you know, really all uh, all of retail is, is in an interesting uh, situation, uh, whether you're open or you're not open. And so the challenges of liquidity and ensuring you, that you have the right levels of, seca- of cash to support the business uh, in the short term and the long term is, is really the responsibility of management uh, to, to navigate it. Uh, I also think as, as you think about the overall uh, retail industry, uh, you can imagine that the, the retail industry leaders are eager to assist uh, in discussions with government and public health officials on, on how to responsibly run open stores and then reopen stores that are closed. I think uh, the retailers who get a lot of press uh, these days and are forefront in the conversation are those deemed essential who are open and are, are you know, are, are, they're the ones being talked about. But as you know, many of the nation's large retailers are closed uh, and their voice has been largely unheard. However, uh, you know, all, on behalf of all of them, we're eager to do uh, the right thing for consumers at the right time. And as we move forward, this group of retailers, that group of retailers that I just mentioned that are closed, uh, will be focused on, on reopening in compliance with uh, public health officials and We'll be ready to demonstrate the proper protocols to assist governors and and local government officials in understanding the state of our readiness uh, to encourage the ease of restrictions when they're appropriate. And that's Brad Weston, the CEO of Party City. And I thought what was interesting, one of the things that he said, Jason, he talked about the responsibility of management to make sure that you have the financial liquidity you need at all times. And that's really relevant considering all of the stimulus packages and kind of bailout assistance that a lot of businesses large and small need right now because of the virus. Absolutely. And, you know, on a lighter note, but an important note, I love the idea that he said, you know, their business is to bring people joy and to sort of enable joy. And I feel like we need a little dose of that uh, every now and again, maybe more than a little (laughs) dose and maybe more than every now and again. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, friend of the show, Stefan Selig joins us. He's working at Bridge Park Advisors now, used to be working for President Obama in the U.S. Department of Commerce. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, all of it, Jason, relates back to the virus and all of it happening in real time, getting reaction from leaders in all walks of life. Well, and one person I know we were both really looking forward mm-hmm. to catching up with is Stefan Seelig. He's a managing partner over at Bridge Park Advisors, longtime fixture on Wall Street, worked at Bank of America as a vice chairman for a number of years, but he also worked in the government. He was the Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade under President Obama. Wide-ranging guy, wide-ranging conversation. Check it out. We have seen a crisis unfold that has both been catastrophic and incredibly fast. And what I find um, uh, most um, uh, interesting about it is that crisis was, in fact, self-engineered as we shut down our economy um, uh, to save lives. So does it make it any worse or any better because of that? Well, um, potentially, Carol, it means that the recovery may be uh, as swift as the decline. As you know, a lot of the commentators you've had on you know, um, your show uh, and on Bloomberg generally have talked about this V, U, and L-shaped recovery. Um, but implicit in that question is because it was self-engineered, is there at least some visibility to an um, equally quick recovery? I guess it's my view that um, that so-called V-shaped recovery, at least in the economy, may be challenging, um, uh, which is different than what you might ex- what you might see in the markets, right. which makes faster. And you know, last week I think um, you, know, you saw one of the strongest weeks in the equity market since uh, boy ni- the 19- mid 1970s right. for a whole host of different reasons. But I think the economy is going to be somewhat slower to rebound. And so, Stefan, you're talking to CEOs all the time. You know, your history on, on Wall Street goes back a long ways advising, you know, some of the most influential uh, decision makers out there. What are they saying to you if you can generalize? Because obviously you're going to have a different view depending on what business you're in. But if you're a CEO, what are you thinking right now? Well, first of all, Jason, um, I think there is no playbook. So yeah. we've never seen an economic crisis like this coupled with a health crisis. So Every, anybody that thinks they have some clairvoyance here, I think, is um, uh, being somewhat misleading. Um, I think everybody is very focused on um, when we are going to be able to return to some level of a new normal. And is it going to be fast enough that there's not going to be mass closures of businesses and people will have jobs to return to? And if it is fast enough, is the consumer going to start spending again, because as you guys know, 70-ish percent of the U.S. economy is directly tied to the consumer, and folks are going to be very focused on, one, um, what has uh, this, how has this impacted the consumer both financially, but also psychically in terms of their willingness and interest in spending uh, money. When we talk about reopening the world and reopening the economy again, if somebody says to you, well, Stefan, when do you think we're going to reopen? How do you think it's going to play out? What do you say? Well, I'd say a couple of things. One um, is it's going to be gradual. So there's not going to be an on-off switch where all of a sudden, Mirabile um, Dictu, we're all back at work the next day because either, either the federal government or the states have said so. I think you will see a phased reopening. Um, both in terms of geographies and in terms of industries. And I think the interesting question um, is both at the federal level and at the state level, what sort of either guidance or 
um, uh, restrictions are going to be placed on folks when that reopening happens, whether it's going to be wearing masks, whether it's going to be certain social distancing um, uh, regulations, whether office, uh, office protocols are going to be different. And, you know, we saw that, Carol, you know, we forget, but we all mm -hmm. used to go into airports without screening and without security provisions. We all used to go into offices in New York City without checking in first. You know, there may be certain regimes now that are just different post-COVID-19. Stefan, I want to ask you about trade. Uh, with the virus as a backdrop, I do wonder how what's going on and what we saw with kind of the breakdown of supply chains again as a result of the virus coming on top of the breakdown of supply chains off of the U.S.-China trade war. Is there some lasting impact as a result of all of this? Yeah, I mean, Carol, you're already seeing a um, relatively severe contraction in, glo in global trade across virtually all regions around the world and across almost every economic sector. Um, and that's obviously because of uh, the dampened uh, economic environment uh, that we are you know, seeing now globally. And that's Bridge Park Advisors and former Undersecretary of Commerce, Stefan Selig, joining us. He tells it like it is. And, you know, he's yeah. talking to CEOs, but he's also talking to people all over the world. He's a big thinker in a lot of ways, Carol. Well, he's another one who understands the intersection of business, trade, markets and politics, which is why we love reaching out to him because he really brings everything that's going on in the the world together and comes up with some really interesting and smart conclusions. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Biz Week. Coming up, we check in with Sue Decker. She's the former president of Yahoo on the board of Berkshire Hathaway, as well as Costco. She's also got a social networking platform that works with colleges. Talk about in the news. It's called Rafter. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. Jason, we had the opportunity to catch up with Sue Decker, really another person who's at the intersection of so much. She's former president of Yahoo. She's on the boards of Berkshire Hathaway, on Costco, on Vox, on Vale Resorts, on so many different companies. But let's keep in mind, she started a new social networking platform. It's called Rafter, and it's really tackling some of the challenges that are facing higher education. Yes, it's at a really challenging time in many ways for many people all over the world right now. And I think universities and students in particular are facing a, a reality that no one really anticipated. You have to commend the universities for how quickly they were able to get people and students home and faculty transition to online learning uh, in such a short amount of time. Uh, but I think it's been a lot of triage and, and weekly, daily emergency meetings trying to figure out how to make that work. Uh, most of them are that I speak with are focused first on getting through the spring semester or spring quarter, depending on how they organize themselves. And then the next focus is uh, how they handle the summer and, uh, and we'll be finding out in May how many people are enrolling and sending checks in. That's going to be important. And then for the next phase will be during the fall. Do they do they need a, a plan B that is starting school online again? Um, and many of them are talking about that right now. So, Sue, you know, tell us a little bit about what, what are some of the specific programs that or, or some of the outreach that you've done with universities as a result or colleges as a result of the virus? What kinds of things are, are going on? 
Sure. Well, we, we announced in mid-March that we would offer our platform and our, our solutions for free for the rest of this academic year, recognizing that these schools are having to handle things that they've never planned on handling before. And so having once you move online, it's more difficult to create a sense of community, to have a, a platform where people can find events, can connect with one another, can keep up the groups that they had in physical form on campus in an electronic form. So since that time, um, we've, we've had a lot of incoming. <laughs> we've been hosting a webinar uh, once a week with um, roughly 20 universities on it. Last week, we had two different ones, um, primarily focused on uh, how they're going to handle orientation coming up. Sometimes, sometimes many of them in the summer are having to figure out an online way to orient parents and students, uh, and as well as for faculty. Faculty has three needs. One, they have to broadcast their lectures, which Zoom and Zoom equivalents can do. Uh, they also have to have a learning management system electronically so students can submit assignments and grades. And there are systems like Canvas and Blackboard that do that. And they also, the third part is what Rafter does, which is a communication um, and a, an event hub so that one tap access, the students can find their Zoom links to get into their classes or they can find their lecture notes for tomorrow. Then the professor can set up a group or a raft so that they can have easy access to the students for online office hours, things like that. So um, those are the kinds of things we've yeah. been offering to support the community. You know, it's funny, Sue, in part uh, just serendipitously, I was uh, connected with the, the dean of a uh, of a journalism school, uh, and I was saying to her, you know, it feels like university higher ed is going to be radically changed by this. And, and her response was interesting. And she said, she said, yes and no. She said, yes, obviously, based on a lot of the technology that, that you and your folks are, are working on. But she said, on the other side, you know, we also have to appreciate that higher education is about convening students and sort of taking them through in a very personal way a, a really critical stage of their life and so much of that happens in person and so much of the community has to be or, or at least traditionally has been in person how do you sort of synthesize and, and rectify all of that as we look at this very uncertain future yeah well i would just say that makes total sense to me i think when we when i started rafter it was based on the experience i saw my daughter having when she started uh university she's now graduated but um it was it was because of how I saw the communication happening on campuses that I felt there could be a much more authenticated network. We're like a slack, but for yeah. universities or next door for universities, it's private, it's curated. Everybody on it is at your school. You can discover things that it makes students feel like they belong and it's a more welcoming experience. So our product was designed as an online adjunct for an offline experience. And yeah. I think the offline experience is fantastic. Um, it's hard to know how long this will go. Some people I talk to think this is accelerating a trend toward online learning where only 3% of online learning, 3% of curriculum was delivered online in the past. And some people think it'll move much more quickly to that um, than it otherwise would have. But I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball on that front. I, I think our, our products sort of work to support physical communities. Um, but I think it becomes even harder to connect and, and stay yeah. feeling like a part of that membership if you're if you're away from your physical community. Sue, I got to ask you, you know, I mean, it's like you started your career on, on Wall Street. You, you know, had a career at, at Yahoo. You serve on the boards of, of Berkshire Hathaway and, and Costco as well. I mean, if there is one person who is sort of seeing the world very holistically uh, right now and seeing all sorts of consumer behavior changing, 
it's you. What jumps out at you uh, as you sort of go through your day? And I can only imagine the emails and conversations that, that you're having. What's surprising you right now? Well, I, I think it's uh, surprising in some ways that we've all gotten used to this new normal. I think yeah. about three weeks ago, most people I talked to felt like their world was upside down, like there was almost this um, feeling of dizziness from one headline after another being so consequential and changing everything that we know in our world, like sports stopping and schools stopping and people going home. And I think now, you know, I think people are like, yeah, I can do this. I don't really want to do it forever, but I could, you know, I could, I could live like this. And I think as part of that, back to the prior conversation of accelerating changes that were already underway, I think the idea of um, home delivery of groceries, for example, you know, I'm on the board of Costco and we have a two-day delivery that we do internally and an instant delivery that Instacart helps with. And, uh, you know, I think all over, people are, I think will have a little more sensitivity to doing things like shaking hands in the future and may have a greater demand for things being delivered, um, just a higher level of germophobia for a while. So yeah. I think there are certain trends that may not have been underway for that reason, but I think that they're likely to accelerate. And I think you can see that in the numbers of everything that you, you look at. I mean, I'm on the board of Costco, of course, which has uh, you know, been indispensable for people during this period. And then as well, Vail Resorts, which had to shut, to shut down a month early um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a business that's already seasonal. So, you know, there's an extreme different companies are obviously being hit in different ways. But does everybody, does every company now have to have the virus playbook? Like, is this just part of our society now in terms of fighting viruses as a, you know, I I, I don't know. Is that part of it? I think, I think having an online playbook is critical for your employees um, and also for your customers in certain circumstances where your customers can be online. They can't really do that for avail resorts, but certainly for the employees um, is, is there needs to be an online playbook. And I think our government, I mean, this was, this is an unprecedented situation and no one was really ready. Everybody's pointing fingers and looking backward about whether we could have been or should have been. But the, the fact is we weren't. And right. I, I think it's very unlikely in the next 10 years that we won't be very ready with testing and the ability to, um, handle tracing, contact tracing in a very different way. A friend of mine's from Singapore. She sends me the daily reports and it's like unbelievable how they run that place. (laughs) Just daily reports, emails the entire city and knowing exactly where each case came from. You know, we're we're nowhere near that. So, um, and you know, it has to work within our freedoms and our, in our government, which is obviously very different from Singapore. But I think all governments around the world of major um, nations will be much more prepared and take yeah. it seriously. And Bill, Bill Gates, many people had said that this was going to come. That's Rafter co-founder and CEO Sue Decker. Um, great to catch up with her because she has seen so much, understands the online world and its impact that it's having, uh, certainly on education and even further. What I thought too is, Jason, she gave us some optimism about what happens in terms of life after the virus. And she reminded that humans are social animals. Totally. A lot of things will ultimately come back. Yeah, no, and she has a fascinating window into the world of higher education, which Mm -hmm. I feel like is one area we've been very focused on, and rightly, from a personal perspective, we've got a vested interest uh, in it, but we also know that lots of our listeners do as well. They're thinking about their kids, they're thinking about their alma mater, they're thinking about what that looks like on the other side, and it's an ever-changing landscape, to be sure. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Mass. 
Wasser. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to hear Jason from Tom's founder, Blake McCoskey. He's such an interesting individual. I love this company. I love their mission. They continue to do things to help others, including those impacted by the virus. Well, and he's got a big new idea, and it's all about sort of taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about wellness. So what is going to be the impact on that business? How are we going to think about ourselves differently in the midst of this, but also on the other side? Another person who's thinking about that, Trek Bicycle, President John Burke. He's been on this program before. It was good to catch up with him because we talked a little bit of politics. Right. He's got a new book out. It's called 16 Simple Solutions to Save America. So you'll look forward to hearing what he has to say about that. And then Bloomberg's own Sarah Fryer. This was a big week for her. Her new book coming out, giving us the inside story of Instagram. It's called No Filter, the inside story of Instagram, appropriately titled. But man, I love all of the people that she talked to, so many, and she gave us incredible insight uh, about uh, Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and why Mark Zuckerberg became so jealous. Yeah, Zuckerberg, Kardashian, Anna Wintour, <laughs> they're all in the book. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week. Another busy week, Jason, on so many different fronts as we figured out where we are in terms of the virus and what the impact will be ultimately and how do we get out of it. It's not an easy process. Basically, we've all got to be patient. Absolutely. And the other big question is, what are we doing throughout this? Yeah. You know, what are we doing maybe to change our lives, change the lives of others? And someone who has thought a ton about that, we know it, is Tom's Shoes founder, Blake McCoskey. He's got a new company as well. And he's just one of those people you want to hear from mm-hmm. in a time like this because he's got the perspective and he's got that vibe about him that makes you think, huh, maybe there's something good that could come out of all of this. Yeah, so I was actually down in Baja on a seven-day silent Vipassana meditation retreat when uh, the corona outbreak happened. So literally, I went into silence with the world being quite normal, uh, and then eight days later came out and the world had totally changed. And uh, rather than fly back home to Jackson Hole where I live, I actually uh, called my ex-wife and, and got her and my kids to fly down to Baja and uh, we decided just to hunker down here uh, for the unforeseeable future until until it's safe to come home. So it's uh, it's good for the kids. They can be outside a lot. We can yeah. stay, you know, practice social distancing and um, and it's you know being in the sun and it's kind of nice. So you know, we feel very blessed to be down here, but doing a lot of work down here every day, helping those in our different communities that we live and work in, uh, and staying connected. So what was that moment like? Take us back to that moment where, you know, obviously things were brewing a little bit, but you had no idea, no sense of, like, the depth depth yeah. of it. What was your first thought? It was, well, it's crazy because I had been in New York the week before because we launched this new company, Made For, that I know we're going to talk about that I've been working on for the past couple of years. We launched it in New York on, um, I think the launch date was on March 4th. Uh, so I was in New York. I was on the on the floor of the stock exchange on the fifth and sixth, doing some interviews, um, and then I left and then went to the meditation retreat on March sixth. So you know there was some there was some turbulent stuff going on in the in the stock market. You know, Disney stock was going down and cruise ships and things like that, but nothing about you know a pandemic. And uh, and so I left. When I came back, I I went to the Laredo Airport, this tiny little airport in Baja, to, to fly to L.A. and then L.A. to, to go back home. And people were wearing masks, and I was like, "Whoa, 
and I hadn't even checked my phone or email and anything in eight days. And so I immediately got online and saw just this barrage of text messages and emails asking if I was okay and where I was and what I was doing. And I was like, wow. And then I started reading the news and, and it was just a, it was a very surreal experience to think how different, uh, you know, just in a week and how much I missed in a week, frankly, from a news perspective and from a, you know, from the spread of the virus. So, well, that's it was, very. Uh, it, was, it gave me a lot of perspective. Well, that's so true. This virus, you know, Blake, is something that moved so quickly, right? And the numbers just went from okay, this isn't something that we're dealing with to all of a sudden, yep, we are dealing with it, um, really quickly. Tell yeah. us about though your employees and everyone, you know, who are working around the world on various projects. Um, what's what's been the direct impact on them and your team? Well, it's you know it's affected everyone, um, you know, kind of the same way. I mean, you know, everyone is pretty much sheltered and staying at home. Um, you know, whether they're one of our aid workers in you know rural Ethiopia on the Tom Shoes front, um, all of our employees for made for are based in L.A. Um, and so they've been you know sheltered and staying at home. Uh, luckily, our distribution center where we send out uh, the wellness kits each month to our members. Um, they uh, they are still operating, so we are still operating, getting uh, people signed up for Made For, and uh, and we're finding that people are really valuing having some structure and some stuff that they can control and their well-being during the time when so much is out of their control. So we're actually seeing the business of Made For you know, growing, you know, quite rapidly since we launched it just six weeks ago. The the world is changing all around us. I mean, we were uh, speaking with someone, a psychologist uh, from Johns Hopkins, who was, who was essentially saying, she was saying, the thing that maybe we're not thinking enough about is self-care and self-care as a way to help those around us. That seems to be uh, at the core of what you're doing here. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so so I spent two years working with scientists from um, university labs at Stanford, Harvard, and other top universities around the country, really trying to understand how do we teach people the habits and practices will have the greatest impact on their life that they can sustain and increase their well-being. Uh, I'd gone through a slight bout of mild depression myself a couple of years ago and really started to ask myself, what are the things that I'm not doing that others who are thriving and flourishing are doing? And how can I make those changes? And I found that, you know, there, the, the information was quite simple, but actually learning and sustaining these habits that the most highly effective people are doing every day is quite hard. And so uh, myself and my partner, Pat Dossett, who was a Navy SEAL for nine years uh, serving in, uh, in the military, and we got together and we started working with these different scientists on, on, on really teaching people these practices. And what's so interesting is we worked on this for two years, and we developed this 10-month program where every month we teach you one new habit and practice. And it's completely analog, and it's always done in your home alone. <laughs> and so it, what's fascinating is that the whole program is built around you getting this box once a month. And in the box, there's a tool that we designed to help you learn the new habit and practice. Tell me a little bit about how you, how you came to what you would focus on and how it would work. And I love the idea of picking one thing because I feel like... You know, we all create this huge list, and then it's like we get nothing done, and we get nothing, I don't exactly. know, it's not helpful to us. Well, that's exactly what we found. We set out, actually, originally to find 12 things uh, that science could prove would have a meaningful effect on your well-being. And after a year's worth of research with working with scientists from Stanford and Harvard, we actually found that there were only 10 things that science could really back up. Um, and so that's why we decided to focus on 10 things and 
Why we chose one a month is exactly what you just said. There's all this information on how we can really take control of our personal well-being has been out there forever. But the reason why so few people actually do it is they're bombarded with all of it at once. You know, you hear it in a podcast or you hear it, you know, by reading a book and you don't ever take the time to actually learn the new practice or habit. And that's Blake McCoskey, founder of Tom's, founder of Made For, and like we said, just someone you want to hear in a time like this, and I feel like that may be one of the themes of this show, Carol, you know, us sort of going back or finding some people who give us some sort of comfort, but maybe more importantly, some perspective uh, at a time like this, because at the end of the day, we are going to get through this, we're making our way, and the question becomes... What are we going to do that's going to be different? And I've got to say, I love some of the initiatives that are coming out from the private sector. We keep hearing from them, from so many of our different guests, about what they are doing. Not only are they running their companies, taking care of their employees, taking care of their own families, but they're thinking about how do we help the greater society that's impacted by the virus. That's exactly what we got from Blake. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Bloomberg Sarah Fryer on her new book. It's called No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. There are so many juicy tidbits in this one. This is your quarantine read for sure. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we've had on our daily radio show this week, Bloomberg Business Week, every day, 2 to 6 p.m. Wall Street time, all about the coronavirus, of course. These were conversations that we had in real time. So keep that in mind as you're Mm. listening. Well, we spoke with Bloomberg News technology reporter Sarah Fryer. We've been following her work on her new book. It came out this week. It's all about Instagram and it's called No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. And we caught up with her to talk about the process, what she wrote about, what inspired her, and some of the interesting stories that she revealed in doing her reporting. I feel good that this story is finally out. I think the Instagram story is one of the most un- unknown stories in business. I learned so much in the process of reporting it out that I'm excited for people to hear. So what did you learn? So I learned uh, the tactics that Instagram had for building its tremendous cultural impact and working within Facebook. Instagram was acquired by Facebook in 2012. And and as business reporters, we generally kind of just let the story end there with a nice victory. Um, but the story really began there, in my opinion, and you know, the bulk of my book happens after the founders are working within Facebook and, and trying to grow their product while grappling with Facebook's move fast and break things mentality and trying to build its, its cultural cachet, cavorting with celebrities and trying to determine what should become popular and shaping our behavior. So, Sarah, I feel like in a story like this, in, in a narrative that's so sort of complicated and, and multifaceted and has so many big characters in it, there must have been some conversations that you had over the course of this book where you thought, ah, okay, so this, the, things start sort of clicking into into place here. What were some of those key conversations? I really, I, I had a, a bunch of conversations with, with people, with employees who'd worked on, at the end of, of the founder's tenure at Facebook, the analytics of and growth uh, determinations about how uh, Facebook would be cannibalized by Instagram's continued success. And I was just, you know, before that was public, I was quite shocked that uh, Facebook would feel threatened by Instagram's success because in my mind, 
Instagram was the future of Facebook. Like this was the company, this was the product that was really going to be the solution to the negative feelings that that public the public had and regulators had about Facebook. And so the fact that they were willing to sacrifice some of Instagram's success in order to hold on to Facebook's dominance was really surprising to me. And the other the other conversations that were quite um, surprising to me were with the um, the people on the partnerships and community teams at Instagram, when we think about Facebook and Twitter, I mean, those sites really try to be neutral. They don't try to get too involved in what becomes popular, who wins and who loses on Facebook is not really their concern. Um, but Instagram has already always had, and I didn't realize this, but they always had an editorial strategy for Instagram, promoting certain people, making certain people famous deciding um, what celebrities to listen to and cater to, even in the design of their product. And, and that was really eye-opening for me because considering how much Instagram has changed, not just our behavior on our phones, but the way that we operate in society and you know, how, what we consider relevant and what we consider interesting, um, it was really uh, fascinating to see how they tipped the scales of, of who won and lost on their platform. Well, and not just what, but who, right? Like who we consider interesting and who we consider uh, relevant, I think, has largely been defined by Instagram, Sarah. Absolutely. And and there's the direct editorial decisions that they've made. The at Instagram account on Instagram has more followers than any Kardashian, of, for example. And they constantly put accounts on there that get boosted and become famous because of their involvement uh, on the on the broader scale, the way that Instagram has been designed has dramatically shaped our, our society. Because there's no resharing of posts on Instagram, everything that is in your feed is something you have created, which makes it the perfect personal branding tool in this economic engine um, of, of marketing, which you know we know them as influencers, the people who get paid to post about what products they're using and what they like. And even just regular people who are using Instagram to build the the version of themselves that they want people to know. That's Bloomberg's Sarah Fryer. She writes on the technology space for us here at Bloomberg News. And she's been really busy over the last past year or so. And she's got her new book out. It came out this week. It's called No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. And I love what you keep saying, Jason. It's a great read while we're all sheltering at home right now. Absolutely. And social media had never been more important to many of us. And Instagram, this really is, you know, people always say, oh, this is the inside story. This really is the inside story in a lot of ways, because it's not just about the founding. It's maybe more importantly, what happened after Mm -hmm. Instagram got bought by Facebook, because it became even more of a juggernaut. It completely upended that company and really the way we think about social media. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Trek Bicycle President John Burke. He talks about staying fit, keeping your supply chain in place, taking care of employees, and even has some advice around politics. Yeah, it's all about saving America. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. So much going on once again this week. Of course, all of it relating back to the virus and all of it happening in real time, Jason, as the news just kept on coming. 
That's absolutely true. So we're happy to catch up with John Burke. He's the president over at Trek Bikes. Obviously, we talked to him about staying fit in quarantine, what he's doing for his employees, what he's hearing from customers. But amid all this, he's thinking some big thoughts about politics. He's got a new book, 16 Simple Solutions to Save America. I've been at Trek for 36 years now, and I've seen a lot of different things. And I've never seen anything with the impact of the virus. I mean, these are un unprecedented times. And so as a, as a company, one of the things we're really focused on are our customers. We've got 5,000 small businesses around the globe, mm. and we're trying to figure out everything we can do to help those customers survive and help them get through this crisis. These are your retailers? These are our retailers. Well, tell us about some of the things that you've had to, you know, some of the stories that you're hearing from them, some of the steps that you've had to do uh, to help them get through this. You know, I mean, it's a mixed bag. I mean, some, you know, one of the things that's good about being in the bike business right now is bikes are good for social distancing. They're good for the environment. They're good for people's health. And you're seeing a lot of people riding bikes, not just in certain cities in the U.S., but all over the U.S. and all over the world. So there's actually, believe it or not, a mini bike boom going on in certain markets. In other markets, they're just closed. So we're having to deal with a mixed bag. But one of the things we're doing as an example is we're putting out a whole bunch of information as to how bicycles can run a safe play with both their employees and their customers. We're also helping people out with how can you help getting government assistance here. We set up a hotline within the business here. The other thing we're doing is, you know, we send out content on here's six ways that you can make it through the crisis. We're doing everything we can to help those retailers manage their businesses. And so, John, tell us about what this outbreak is like and how this virus is affecting your local community and and what uh, that means in terms of you taking action for your employees. Well, you know, as, as soon as the virus broke, we, we got the, you know, the senior staff together here and we said, what are our priorities? And we came up with six, six priorities. The number one was the safety for our employees and our customers. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're super serious about. So uh, we're having everybody work from home. We have a small manufacturing group that works at the office. Um, I'm still working at the office just because I like being here. And when you come in, you get your temperature taken, you get asked a bunch of questions, but we're doing everything we can on a safety side here, and we're doing everything we can to make sure employees are in a good space. I mean, I'm just curious what your perspective is, too, as you look at what's going on on the coast, whether it's West Coast, you know, or the East Coast, certainly big markets for you guys, um, you know, but the, the magnitude of cases and shutdown, are you anticipating, you know, something along those levels, or I'm just curious how you see it? Well, you know, we, you know, you take a look, Michigan, for example, I mean, our business in Michigan is down 80%. Yeah. And if you take a look at the bike business, April is Christmas in the bike business, and you're taking a look at big markets for Trek that are just shut down. And if you go to Europe, you're looking at, you know, an 80% shutdown. But, um, you know, thankfully there's, you know, a few other positive things going on just because of the popularity of the bike. And we believe my whole message to the team here is we're going to use this as our finest hour. We are rethinking everything about the business. 
It's a whole new world. And when we get on the other side of this, we're going to be stronger than we've ever been before. That's what we're focused on. That's so interesting. So tell us, give us an example of something that, that you're rethinking. Are we talking supply chain? Are we talking sort of retail relationships, like maybe all of the above? Like, Give us an example of something there. You know, we're talking everything, but I'll take it to one place, which is just digital. Um, most of our bikes are sold through retailers, and people walk into a store and they buy the store. Well, in this world, a lot of people home delivery. So our whole website has changed to, you know, you can get on the website, you can buy the bike, you can get that bike delivered at your house. Um, that might sound like an easy thing, but to pull that off, I think we pulled that off in less than a week. Hmm. And we're pulling it off really well. And it's all those sorts of things that we're doing, whether it's working with the customer on the website, our supply chain, the way we're dealing with marketing, where our salespeople are focused. Um, This is a new world and uh, we're adapting to it. So, John, tell us a little bit about this book that you uh, wrote, 16 Simple Solutions to Save America. Um, Timely uh, and thoughtful, considering it is an election year. And I do feel like right now we are seeing some leaders step up to the plate and some really disappoint. You know, after the 2016 election, I said to myself, I was really kind of disappointed with the whole political process. And I said, if no one runs for the presidency who is competent or who has a plan, that I'd do it myself. And so I spent the last two years writing a book, which would be my plan for the American people. And I got to the end and I decided not to run, but I decided, you know what, this is a really good plan and I'm going to share it with the American people. And the first chapter, and there's 16 on 16 nonpartisan solutions to save America. The first chapter is demand a high performance government. And I think we, um, I think we deserve better as a people. And I think COVID-19 is a perfect example of good government matters. And I think we've forgotten that as a people. And right now, we're paying the price for poor leadership and we're paying the price for poor government. And what have you seen as this has, has played out? Because we've been talking about this a ton, uh, John, as you can imagine, especially sort of sitting here where we are in the tri-state area and seeing mayors and governors, you know, candidly, regardless of your politics, sort of step to the step to the front. I mean, this unprecedented, I think, by all accounts, you know, even conference call that we saw earlier, it really, you know, brings that mm-hmm. to mind, Carol. Yeah, uh, totally. And similar things going on on the West Coast, too, and I'm, I'm guessing around you as, as well, John. Um, what have you, what have you learned about leadership or, or what are some of the things that you've seen that dovetail with what you're writing about? You know, I think a, a key here is, you know, Jim Collins, great business author, defines a level five leader and he says it's a, it's a combination of will and humility. Yeah. And humility is putting the team first and not putting yourself first and humility is being a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all. And I think the problem we have with this administration is we have just, we're the know-it-alls. And if you take a look, January 20th, the first case of coronavirus happened in South Korea and it happened in the United States on exactly the same date. If you take a look at where we are now, if you take a look at South Korea, they've had less than 200 deaths 
In the United States, it's over 10,000. Our country is shut down. Theirs is not. And we're spending $2 trillion in the first group of funding to try and get our economy back. That's the price of poor government, is we miss this thing at the start, even though you had people like Bill Gates, you had people like George W. Bush, you had Barack Obama, you had people talking about the potential of a pandemic, and for sure you had the CIA, you had other intelligence agencies telling the White House this is what could happen in January, and it was ignored. And that's Trek Bikes President John Burke joining us from Wisconsin, talking about his book, Carol, which was fascinating. I mean, he really goes deep on what he thinks needs to be done. It's not his first book. He wrote a book about his dad. We had talked about that yeah. with him last year. Um, and he's a business person. He's dealing well, with this uh, as a manager. I feel like he's one of those modern business people because he thinks about his company, obviously, but he thinks about his family has been so involved in the truck bicycle business. It's multi-generational. But he also thinks about his employees. They have a very distinct culture. We've read the book about the culture of that company. And I think he's trying to apply some of those softer, more thoughtful ideas in terms of what he does for his business to the broader society at large. And that's why I love catching up with him. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. But before we go, a couple of stories we want to tell you about that you can find at Bloomberg.com online and on the Bloomberg terminal. One is about virtual Zoom nightclubs. People are paying, Jason, real money to get into them. It's in the pursuit section this week. Yeah, I'm headed to a club right after this, right after we're done. I'm going to get all dolled. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do <laughs> Please that. Don't. Please I'm not going to do that. Also, the cover story. Wow. Uh, what an amazing yeah. and deeply reported story about Carnival Cruise Lines, its role in the coronavirus, its reaction, maybe lack thereof, and everything that was happening on the boats and back at headquarters. Well, it's all about what it knew, when it knew it, and what it did or didn't do when it came to the coronavirus. So a really detailed story, and it's a must-read. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Have a safe weekend. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to us every day, our Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m., Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, we'll get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcasts. You can also watch our show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. And we'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.